You're listening to Call of the Herald, book one of the Dawning of Power trilogy, a podcast novel written and read by Brian Rathbone. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening. Occasionally, flashes of lightning illuminated the great hall, only long enough to produce quick and frightening glimpses, and the thunder and the rush of rain left distorted echoes lingering in the air. Images of demons and phantoms lurking in the darkness tormented her. She didn't remember falling asleep, but when she woke, she saw the far end of the cavern bathed in a soft, pale glow. A jagged chasm. High in the wall was the source of that blessed light. Her muscles protested when she stood, but she rolled her neck, stretched her legs, and started toward the light. What appeared to be a throne of rough-hewn rock seemed to grow out of the far wall, beneath a colossal bas-relief. The throne was grossly oversized, large enough to hold ten men, and was flanked by a pair of statues in the shape of men. Similar figures lined the walls, and they made Katrin's flesh crawl. She soon realized they were not statues, but suits of heavy armor, the likes of which had not been seen in recent history. Under her breath, she muttered, Strange, empty armor guarding an abandoned throne. The magnificence of the hall left her awestruck and she wondered what kind of person would sit on such a throne. How could anyone not have felt tiny and insignificant in this enormous display? She pictured herself in that high seat, and seeing herself sitting there in her leathers and homespun made her smile. Thoughts of Osborne and the others, though, soon banished all humor. The chasm bisected the wall above the relief like a gaping wound and Katrin desperately wanted to reach it. She tried to gauge the distance from the ledge that ran along the top of the relief to the bottom of the gap. It was at least three times her height, and she knew she would never be able to jump that far. There didn't seem to be any other way out, so Katrin decided to inspect the wall above the great mantle. Climbing onto the throne, she hoped the ghosts of whatever kings might have occupied it would not be offended by her trespassing. The relief was easy to climb, its worn image providing an easy grip. She hated to climb on the ancient beauty, but it was unavoidable. The wall above the ledge was rough-hewn, like that of the throne, and it bore many scars and cracks. Running her fingers over it, searching for any notches she could use during her climb, She was disappointed to find no suitable handholds within her reach. She needed something to stand on. The suit of armor on the far side of the throne was in fairly good condition, and she approached it apprehensively, halfway fearing it would come to life and attack her. It remained still, and she ran her hand along the breastplate. It was popped and corroded, but it still had much of its tensile strength and mass. Weight was a problem. She would be able to carry only so much while climbing. Knocking on the side of the helmet, 
she found it was quite solid and pulled it free from the rest of the armor, marveling at the craftsmanship. Even covered in dust and grime, she could see it was beautifully done, and she hated that she was going to use it as a stool. Climbing the relief with one hand was out of the question. She considered tossing the helm onto the ledge, but feared the noise. Finally, she decided to wear the helmet. After cleaning out the inside with her shirt, she gingerly pulled it over her ears. It was too big for her and flopped from side to side whenever she moved her head. Her vision was partially blocked and the smell was most unpleasant. But she endured the discomfort and made her way to the top of the relief. She set the helmet in the most stable position possible and, after a deep breath, stepped onto it with one foot. Slowly, carefully, she put her weight on it and brought her other foot up to rest on the best toehold she could find. The toehold was not so good, but it took some of her weight off the helmet and allowed her to extend herself. At the top of her greatest reach, she felt a knob of rock. Hopeful, she climbed down and slid the helmet perilously close to the end of the ledge. When she stepped back up on it, the helmet shifted and nearly upset her balance, but she caught herself in time. The protrusion above was wide, but not well enough defined to provide a firm grip. Frustrated, she used her belt knife to chisel around the top. The tip of the knife snapped off and she cursed her luck, promising herself that her next belt knife would be more like a pickaxe. Using what was now the blunt point of her knife, she fell to work on the stone. What remained of the blade was not as sharp, but it was thicker and stronger, so it had become a better tool for the task. She worked in a precarious position, perched on the helmet and overextended but she landed several solid blows on the rock. Chips of stone and sparks flew before her determined stabbing. With her handhold more defined, she began the perilous climb in earnest. She had to expand a few chinks while she clung to the wall, and her energy was nearly spent by the time she reached the large crack. But getting to it gave her a burst of energy. Grappling her way to the base of the opening, she found it difficult to enter. The bottom was too narrow for her to fit through, and her feet scraped against the rock below, unable to find purchase. With an effort born of desperation, she used her arms to heave herself into the crevice. Dangling in what was an extremely uncomfortable position, she rested her quivering arms. Breathing heavily, she remained there for a few moments before pulling herself the rest of the way in. Katrin knew how close she had come to falling, but her curiosity won out over her fear and physical exhaustion, and she moved on. The crevice continued for a short distance before it opened into fresh air. Katrin made her way to the opening, and she felt moist, chilly air on her face. The sight below terrified her. A sheer drop of several hundred feet was all that stood between her and the valley floor. She realized she was now on the opposite side of the mountain. 
Edging herself out of the opening, she craned her neck to see how far she was from the crest. It looked as though she might be able to climb it, and she knew she could not descend the cliff face safely. Gathering her strength, she climbed to the top of the crevice. There were large foot and handholds, and the opposite wall of the cleft gave her leverage. The ledge above the crevice provided a commanding view of the Pinook Valley, and Katrin saw the sun for the first time in many days. Columns of smoke, far to the north, rose into the sky. It did not look like a forest fire, and the recent rains reduced that possibility even further. A cold feeling crept into her stomach as it occurred to her that she was seeing the smoke from hundreds of campfires. Her gut told her that an army approached from the north. She felt naked and exposed on the side of the mountain, especially knowing the men who captured Osborne might have been army scouts, and they could still be looking for his companions. Though she didn't think Osborne would tell them anything, the supplies and bedrolls in the cavern clearly indicated he had not been alone. She simply had to trust her luck and hope she would not be seen. But she was not optimistic. From atop the crevice, she had a better view of her climb to the peak. It didn't look easy, but it was certain to be a great deal easier than her escape from the throne room. Having no desire to remain in the open, she began to climb. The incline was fairly gradual, and she walked much of the way. Occasionally, she had to get on her hands and knees to make it through a tough spot, and in several places, she had to climb over large rock formations that stuck out of the mountain. From her higher vantage point, the rock face below resembled the edge of a huge crater, as if some god had taken a bite out of the mountainside. When she gained the crest, she flattened herself down against the rock, and crept along to look into the Chinalpa Valley. Trying to take advantage of the excellent view, she searched for the cavern entrance, but she had lost her bearings and was unsure how it would look from above. A small ridge sloped gently down the mountain face, and she decided to follow it to the base. About to stand, she caught movement in her periphery. Flattening herself further, she turned to look. Nothing stirred, but she remained silent and still as a stone. Fear paralyzed her when two figures emerged from behind a rock outcropping. They were south of her, but near the top of the ridgeline, concealed by the shadows, and they seemed to be trying to stay in the darkness. Katrin froze and tried to become invisible. When the forms stopped and turned in her direction, tears came to her eyes and her lip began to quiver. She saw one motion to the other and then point in her direction. Escape was unlikely, and she decided she would rather throw herself from the cliff face than be captured. Standing quickly, she turned to make her desperate retreat. She had only taken three steps when some instinct made her look behind to see if she was being pursued, and she nearly shouted out for joy. Benjin and Chase emerged from the shadows, waving their arms at her. Stopping in mid-stride, she nearly fell. Rushing to meet them halfway, she hugged each of them and asked, 
Osborne? She was shocked to see both of them smile. He's fine, Chase blurted, unable to control his excitement. Strom and I saw the soldiers approaching the cavern, and we sneaked in behind them. They were busy tying up Osborne, and we caught him by surprise. We used the rocks we had by the entrance to kill one and knock the other one out, he said. Benjamin got back late last night, he added. We'll talk about this later, Benjamin said. Right now, there's an army approaching, and they have two scouts who haven't returned. They look to have been a few days ahead of the army, but they'll soon be missed. Let's get back to the cavern. Katrin swayed on her feet when she realized the second set of shadowy forms she had seen had not been soldiers at all. It had been Strom and Chase. Had she stayed a moment longer, she would have seen them rescue Osborne. All the fear and pain she experienced in the past day had been for nothing. She began to cry as she realized she could have just climbed back onto the raft and pulled herself safely back to camp. Are you all right, little miss? Benjamin asked, looking her over for any signs of injury. I'm fine, she replied, but the tears of mixed joy and frustration kept flowing. Chapter 10 Security is the blindfold worn by those who cannot accept the uncertainty of the future. Munden Barr, Speculator One of the soldiers lay supine near the fire, still unconscious, and Benjamin seemed to think there was little chance he would ever wake. They hoped he would regain consciousness soon so they could squeeze some information out of him. For the moment, though, he would give no more information than his deceased companion. Katrin did not want to know what they had done with the body of the other man, so she did not ask. The thought of Chase killing someone, even to defend himself or a friend, seemed out of character with his gentle nature, and she blocked any image of that from her mind. Not far from the lake lay a new raft, made of many saplings that had been hastily bound together with rope and vines. When Strom saw her looking at it, he walked to her side. I was coming to look for you, he said. Katrin felt tears filling her eyes, and in a rare moment, Strom put his hand on her shoulder. Come on, let's get something to eat. Seeing their provisions still intact brought a wave of relief. She had feared it all lost to the attackers. It was odd that she had gone a relatively short time without food, yet she felt as if she had not eaten in weeks. It was as if the time she'd spent thinking about starvation had had a physical effect on her. Though she was able to eat only half of what she took, she kept the rest nearby for when her appetite returned. Its very presence brought her comfort. Benjamin filled her in about his journey. First, let me say I believe your father is well and is adequately defended in the cold caves. Miss Maris is also faring well, given the circumstances. I was unable to get any information regarding Osborne's family, and the only information I got about Chase's father was that he was last seen with Wendell. 
I'm guessing he's in the cold caves as well. Miss Maris said Wendell led many people to the cold caves, and once inside, they blocked the entrances with rock and hastily laid mortar. As far as she knew, they are continuing to build up the blockade even as the Jean remove it, but that process is slowly forcing them back into the caves. Others fled to the protection of the master house. Far too many to be comfortably housed there. Riots broke out when the masters began strictly rationing food and water, since their supplies were not plentiful enough to support such numbers. He said and stopped to consider his next words. There is a bit of good news and more bad news. First, the bad news. Peyton Ross was captured and forced to talk. Peyton told them he thought Catrin was the herald and about the day Osborne was attacked. He also described each of us as well as a few others in great detail. He told them that Strom, Chase, and I had mysteriously disappeared and he thought we had run to hide in the mountains with Catrin, he continued. The good news is also bad news. I guess I failed to mention that. The Jean know who you are, what you look like, and that you are most likely not in the Master House or the Cold Caves. Because of this, they have changed their strategy. Now they only wish to contain the people who are trapped and use their numbers to scour the rest of the Godfist looking for you. This will take much of the pressure off of those who are under siege, and there should be less loss of life. The bad part, of course, is that they'll be combing the mountains, looking for us. Katrin shivered and pulled her knees to her chest as the weight of his words settled onto her consciousness. The Jean wanted only her. Maybe, if she gave herself up to them, they would leave the people of the Godfist alone. There is another part of this story I have not told you yet, Benjen said. I must stress how very important this is. You are being entrusted with sacred information that you must never reveal. Can you all promise me that you will never reveal any of what I tell you to another living soul? They all nodded solemnly. Miss Maris told me things she was strictly forbidden to tell anyone, not of the Vestrana. He paused and looked at each of them solemnly. Katrin tried to remember where she had heard the word Vistrana before, but all she could recall was some talk about a secret society that was shrouded in mystery. In order for me to tell you these secrets, you have to swear the Vistrana oath, but first I must explain some things so you'll know what you're swearing to. You don't have to swear the oath, but if you don't, I'll not be able to tell you some things and neither will anyone who has sworn. The young people looked at each other, wondering if any would refuse to swear. At the end of the last Istran phase, the Varrocks were nearly destroyed, and they went into hiding to survive. They knew their knowledge and beliefs were important and needed to be passed on, so they formed a secret society known as the Vestrana, and my family has been a part since its inception. My grandfather swore me in when I was still a boy, he confided. The Vestrana opposed the Jean in their practice of conquering lands and then forcing the conquered peoples to convert to their religion. The penalty for refusal 
was death. Our secret exile has gone on for thousands of years, and we have replenished our numbers. We'll not dictate religious beliefs to others, as we wish every person to choose his or her beliefs freely and not be persecuted for them. We strictly oppose any religion that mandates killing people simply because their beliefs are different. Do you all understand? he asked. I'm no good at lying, Strom admitted for the second time. Every time I try to lie to Miss Maris, she calls me on it, on the spot. I'm just not good at keeping secrets, so I don't know if I should take the oath. The choice is yours. I'll not force you to take an oath you feel you cannot keep. I will tell you, however, that you won't have to lie. You just cannot say certain things. You can be completely honest with someone without revealing any of the things you must keep safe, Benjamin said. I can be quiet, and if I don't have to lie, well, then I think I could do it, he said, looking a bit more confident. Benjamin gave him a moment to reconsider before he continued. Before I can tell you any more, I'll tell you the oath, and if you feel it is right, you should swear it. Here it is. I swear to uphold the values of the Vistrana. I will not divulge any information considered within the confidence of the Vistrana. I will seek to free the oppressed and vanquish the oppressor. I will give my life before I will betray myself or the Vistrana, he intoned. It was simple enough, but Benjamin made them explain it back to him in their own words, to be sure they understood its meaning. I must ask you to understand that people generally prepare for several seasons before they are allowed to take the oath. There are many things you do not know, so you must not say anything at all about any of this to anyone for any reason. Ever. Is that clearly understood? They all nodded soberly. Once he was satisfied they understood the gravity of the situation, he asked if any of them wished to swear the oath. All of them wanted to, and each recited it individually. Benjamin made them repeat it until they could speak it from memory, and he formally welcomed each of them to the Vastrana and kissed them on their foreheads. I've never sworn anyone in before, he admitted, and seemed much more relaxed when he spoke again. Many innkeepers across the world are members of the Vestrana and serve as a part of a huge information network. Miss Maris is one of those innkeepers, and she has access to information few else on the Godfist are privy to. The Vestrana have many allies, some of whom may make a living in shady dealings, but they honor the Vestrana. Miss Maris suggested we seek out one particular ally. In doing so, she had to reveal one of her most trusted secrets to me. There is a harbor on the east coast of the Godfist. It's along a rough section of coast that offers very little safe anchorage because of the many surrounding islands and reefs that'll sink an unwary ship. The only ships known to safely dock there are pirate ships, and even those are somewhat rare events. The Godfist is pretty far outside established trade routes, and pirate ships only dock here to avoid pursuit 
though sometimes they trade goods and information with the Vastrana. There are now two ships docked at the cove, as far as we know. They sought refuge from the Jean fleet, fearing the ships had been sent after them. The last Miss Maris had heard, they were still there. She's going to try to get word to them and arrange passage for us. Though they are not here with us, agents of the Vistrana are doing all they can to help. I know the Jean are going to scour the Godfist in search of Katrin, so I propose we travel to the cove and leave the Godfist with the pirates. Even if Miss Maris is not able to contact them, we may be able to work something out. And to be completely honest, I don't have any better ideas. His words were met with utter silence, and Katrin struggled to make sense of it all. She could not imagine leaving the Godfist, her home, and had never thought about going any other place. The others seemed to have similar problems assimilating the information. Chase was the first to find his voice. Where would we go? he asked. We should go to the last place they would expect us to go, Benjen said. To the Greatland, into the heart of their empire. Do you really think that's the best thing to do? Katrin asked. The Greatland is the largest and most heavily populated landmass on Godsland, Benjen said. We can disguise ourselves and hide much more easily among so many people not to mention the huge area they would have to search to look for us. It may also be that getting you to the Greatland is the best way to help fulfill the prophecy. You really believe I'm the Herald? Katrin asked, fearing his answer. I'm not sure what I believe, he said. But I know you have important tasks ahead of you, and no matter what you or I believe... You have already done some important work. There's no going back, I'm afraid. From now on, you'll always be the one who was declared the Herald, whether you are or not. Truth can be a difficult thing to find. Katrin had never heard Benjen speak so profoundly, and she wondered what else she didn't know about the man she had worked beside for so many years. I'm sorry. I don't have all of the answers. I wish I did, he said, shaking his head. In many ways, I'm just as confused as you are. To follow our hearts and hope we make the right decisions is the best we can do. Do we agree we should make for the cove? He knew their answer and told them what to pack and what to leave behind. During this activity, he pulled Katrin aside, but seemed to have trouble choosing his words. I've sworn the Vastrana oath, he began. A message given into my trust must be delivered, unopened, to the intended recipient, unless it cannot be done. There is strict protocol on this, and I must honor it, even when I don't want to. I considered breaking my oath when Miss Maris gave me this message. I thought about reading it before I gave it to you. I even considered destroying it without reading it. I'm ashamed to admit I was tempted, but I will keep my oath. This unopened message is for you. You don't have to tell me what it says, 
I'm just the messenger, he said as he handed her a tightly rolled parchment closed with wax. The seal impressed in the wax belonged to Nat Derzinger. After moving off to a quiet place by the fire, Katrin stared at the parchment. She did not want to open it, afraid of what it might say. Nat was a pariah. His outlandish ranting about the coming of Istra and the dawning of a new age, too disturbing for most people to give any credence to. Some said he was mad. Others claimed he was afflicted with some disease. But most agreed his public sermons were the ravings of a deranged mind. Katrin had to wonder. Now that many of his prophecies were actually coming true, whether Nat was mad or everyone else was. An uneasy feeling gnawed at the pit of her stomach as her beliefs began to crumble beneath her. Fear crept in where fallen truths no longer held sway, and yet she felt liberated to pursue limitless possibilities that would open to her. She tore the wax seal away and unrolled the parchment. My dearest Katrin, my fondest wish is that you will walk in peace and light and that your mind will always remain free. That concludes this episode of Call of the Herald. For more information and additional downloads, visit brianrathbone.com. Thank you for listening.